Well, it's been a rough year, uh, to say the least. But as we're going through life, uh, you know, this is, this is the way life is, right? There's, there's good times, there's bad times, there's struggles, there's triumphs. Um, but as we're living in 2020, uh, I think we're all starting to notice our society become more and more godless, uh, our government grow more and more corrupt, uh, and the truth is, the days ahead look dark and scary for future generations. It just does. Uh, unless you're hiding your head under a rock, <laughs> that's, that's essentially the outlook for the next 20, 50 years. We've gone downhill big time in the last uh, 20 years, uh, and we're continuing to go downhill. Uh, it's not slowing down. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live in a world that's getting more and more evil? Uh, are we supposed to speak out and, and let everybody know and scream from the rooftops all the evil that's going on? Or is it better for us to just hide and hunker down and wait for God to do something uh, to bring about a change? Well, what we're going to be studying this morning is Matthew chapter 14. Uh, in the first uh, 21 verses of Matthew chapter 14 is going to help us understand our situation a little bit better and, and help us understand that this is not a unique time that we're in uh, from the standpoint of evil growing uh, and those who are trying to serve God struggling. Uh, and, and the future doesn't look good. This is something that happens repeatedly over time. And as we look this morning at chapter 14, we'll see it was very present in the first century uh, when Jesus walked on the earth. Let's start reading the first 12 verses of Matthew 14. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the first half of the story we're going to be reading about uh, this morning. There's two different parts. But in this first part, uh, we have a lot of things revealed to us uh, that, that I want us to take a little bit of time and digest. First of all, we notice in verse uh, 1 that there's a Herod the Tetrarch 
who is over the land. And this is not uh, Herod the Great, who was mentioned earlier in the book of Matthew. This is one of his sons. And, and what he says is really interesting. As we've been studying through Matthew, uh, what he says is about John the Baptist. He says, uh, John has been resurrected in Jesus. Now, as we've studied... We saw John uh, preparing the way in the wilderness, preaching the truth and baptizing people uh, earlier in the book in chapter 3. And then we saw John appear again in chapter 11. Uh, but he was in prison and he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask if he was the Messiah. And now, all of a sudden, Herod thinks that he's been raised from the dead. And we didn't even know he was dead yet. So Matthew gives us the backstory and helps us understand what has happened to John the Baptist. John has spoken against Herod the Tetrarch, also known as Herod Antipas. He has condemned Herod for being with, marrying, his brother Philip's wife. Whenever we go to history, we actually learn a lot about this guy, Herod Antipas. Uh, he had actually married uh, a foreign wife, an Abitian princess, and made her his queen. But then he goes and visits Philip, his brother, and he meets Herodias, Philip's wife, and they decide, hey, you know what, I really like you. Hey, I really like you too. Hey, how about we do this? You divorce your husband, I'll divorce my wife, and then we can be together and we'll be happy because we have love. And so they do that. He divorces his wife, the, the arranged marriage to the princess of an Arab nation, and she divorces Philip, Herod's own brother. What's even more twisted as you look at history is uh, Herodias is a grandson of Herod the Great. Herodias is Herod's niece, Herod Antipas's niece, that has married Philip, another brother, married the niece, and now he is stealing the niece and marrying the niece for himself. What a wonderful family relationship. <laughs> it's just twisted and messed up. But as they have decided to do all these things, Herod Antipas is kind of in a difficult situation. He's now uh, gotten rid of this princess, and that king's not happy. As you look at history, he comes up against Herod Antipas and defeats him, and Herod Antipas is on unstable ground with his kingdom. He's not really a king. He's just kind of like a governor. And, and so now he's on this unshaky ground, and then John the Baptist comes up and starts saying, she's not your wife. What do you mean? I married her. She's not your wife. She's not yours. In other words, you entered into a covenant with another woman. She entered into a covenant with another man. And that divorce does not make you uh, un unable to, uh, does not make you free from the covenant relationship that you were in with your spouse. It's not lawful for you to have her. Beyond that, it's his brother's wife. <laughs> in Leviticus, you were told not to go into your brother's wife. This is a big no-no. They were allowed to marry their brother's wife. If their brother dies, they were commanded to, but they're not supposed to be doing that. So all of this is evil and incestuous, and it's just a picture of a bad uh, leader, an immoral leader. And now, because John has spoken out, 
Herod says, well, Herodias says, you better imprison him. And Herod listens and imprisons John. And then Herodias hates him so much for making the statement against Herod and Herodias' relationship that she conceives a way to have John put to death. She has her daughter from Philip, Salome, which is Herod Antipas' great niece and stepdaughter. Oh, this is so confusing. And, and she has her dance before Herod on, her, on his birthday and his company. And you get the picture. It's probably a sensual dance or something like that. And it pleases them. And he gives her a promise. I'm going to give you whatever you want. She goes and talks to her mother and, and says, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. What did John do wrong? He just condemned Herod for breaking the law. As the king-ish of a Jewish nation, uh, there was an understanding, an expectation that this is not right. What he has done is wrong. And John spoke out against it, and he lost his head. Notice, Herod is suffering from his decision. As he looks at, as he hears about the fame of Jesus, he says, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. There's fear inside of him and guilt because of what he's done, because he knew John was a man of God, and now he believes John has been resurrected and reincarnated somehow in Jesus. Shows he has no idea about the truth of, of God and how God really works, but this is his perception of what is going on. This whole story really just paints for us a picture of corruption and evil being in power in the first century. That's what this whole story does for us. It helps us understand that, that the leadership and the government in the first century was evil. It wasn't easy. It wasn't a, a picnic. It was a hard uh, situation for anybody who wanted to speak the truth. Here John stands up to the man. <laughs> he tells him the truth. He lets everybody know the truth about uh, what, what God wants from a leader and what God wants from his people. He doesn't want Herod to lead the people down a path of greater immorality. He stands up and, and points out the wrong instead of acting like it's okay. Think for a minute about our society. Think about our leaders. Think about the way our society views people speaking the truth when it goes against culture. Does, do we have freedom of speech? Oh, yes. <laughs> In a sense, right? We have no problem, no worry about being beheaded for speaking the truth. But consider the push from our society to be silent and to accept the flaws that we see, the immorality that we see in our leaders and in everyone else around us. They pressure us to judge men and women based on standards that are not biblical. To say that someone is righteous and good and just when his life shows something totally different because maybe he's the lesser of two evils. 
everyone's told, put your trust in these men and these women because they've got abilities and they've got strength and they can provide wealth and freedom and justice and security and overlook all their flaws. But that's not what John did. And John died standing for what was true. As Jesus said, there's not been a man greater than John the Baptist. He would not buy in to the biased narrative that was being shoved down his throat. What a man. Well, then the story transitions. It tells us the disciples took the body of John, they buried it, and then they went and they told Jesus. And this is what happens. Verse 13, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who, are, who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So here we have Jesus hearing about the, the beheading of John and the destruction of John at the hands of this evil king. And what does Jesus do? He plans an attack to overtake the throne. Right? That's what he does. No, it's not what he does. <laughs> well, it seems like the perfect time, right? Herod is weak, and now he has done something that's enraged the people. The people would be up against Herod at this time. Now's the time, Jesus. Seize the opportunity. God has obviously brought you here for such a time as this. Go, destroy Herod. Take over the, the whole kingdom and, and spread out to Rome and, and take your army and march. What does Jesus do when he hears these words? He withdraws to a desolate place. A desolate place is a place where there is nobody. There's no people. There's no towns. There's no stores. <laughs> it's a place where you would go to, to not be bothered. Uh, or it's a place where you would escape to, to, to keep from being destroyed. And maybe uh, as, as we start to think about this, why would Jesus go to such a, a desolate, abandoned place? Maybe we, we think he's going there to escape persecution from Herod. Herod hears uh, that the, the fame of Jesus and thinks this is John re, uh, resurrected. Maybe Her Herod's going to come and attack Jesus. Maybe. But as we continue reading, 
we learn that Jesus isn't so worried or concerned about that. We don't really see any implication that he's really upset about that. But what we do see is he, go, he gets away trying to be by himself, and he's followed by a huge crowd. They're willing to come out into the desolate place. If you were to skip down into the next story, which we'll read next week, verse 23, it, he finally gets rid of these crowds, and he even sends his disciples away, and he goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. And so maybe that's really the intention of him all along, but... Anyway, as, as, as Jesus is there in the desolate place, this is a, a repeated phrase. Uh, we see that this is a desolate place. Crowds come and find him. He's not able to hide himself anymore. His fame has grown to such an extent that even out in the middle of nowhere, everybody is coming to him to find help, to find healing. How would you feel? If you're trying to get away from everybody and they just keep coming. <laughs> Maybe you're grieving the loss of your friend, the loss of a loved one. And then these people just won't stop. We might be upset about that. But notice how Jesus responds. He has complete compassion on them. He heals their sick. And then the disciples, maybe they're getting tired of all this. Maybe they too are struggling because they were disciples of John the Baptist, some of them. And maybe they're ready to get rid of these people as well. And what they say is, we don't have enough food for these people. There's, there's no food here. Jesus, send them all away so that they can go out to all the different villages and maybe find food for themselves. Now, if they're in a desolate place and there's 10,000 people... How likely is it that as they spread, they're going to find food? There's not convenience stores on every corner, okay? This is not a highly populated area, and it's not as grown up as our society today. And so the disciples are, in a sense, probably trying to be compassionate toward the crowds. They need food, and we don't have enough to give them. But what Jesus says is, you give them something to eat. Now, how would you feel knowing there's 10,000 people, 5,000 men, women, children uh, added to that. There's that many people, and he says, you give them something to eat. Okay, we've got five loaves and two fishes. We're going to give up our food, and it's all going to be gone, and we're all still going to be hungry. It will do nothing. And Jesus said to do that and give, give them something to eat, and then he says, bring them to me. He multiplies the bread, he blesses the bread, multiplies the bread, and gives it to all the people. And notice this, verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. God provided for the people in the desolate place. Now, as we're reading this, it just kind of seems like we're going from story to story, right? There's, what's the connection? We see a transition into Jesus withdrawing to a desolate place. And it doesn't really say anything about why he's doing it at this point. It doesn't really explain what's going on here and how Matthew is trying to uh, reveal something or tell us something in this story. So we have to try to understand what's happening in this text. And we have to think about it a little bit harder than normal. Because usually Matthew makes it so easy for us. So now let's, let's back up for a second. And let's think about how this fits into the whole flow of everything that we've been studying. 
In chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples out to teach the gospel. And then in chapter 11, we find a bunch of bad things happening. We have John, John the Baptist sending his disciples. They're doubting Jesus. And that doesn't sound good for the kingdom. If, if the, the prophet who has come before Jesus is doubting that Jesus is the, the Messiah, that doesn't sound good. Chapter 12, we see the religious leaders are doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're they are saying that he serves Beelzebul. In chapter 13, Jesus points out, nobody's listening to me. They all have grown dull of hearing. They've stopped paying attention to anything that I'm saying anymore. They've come to get stuff. And then at the end of chapter 13, we see Jesus is even rejected in Nazareth. You feel the negative tone that's in throughout this. And in chapter 14, John the Baptist is beheaded. It's just downhill. But then we transition. Jesus goes to a desolate place and he heals and he provides. What an interesting flow this is. <laughs> Everything is desolate. Everything is dead. There's no hope. And then Jesus provides this great blessing and compassion. But these two stories are very clearly connected in the, the, the statement that they make about leadership. The first section tells us about Herod, right? He's full of immorality. He's full of injustice, killing someone who's completely innocent. Notice the rule of Jesus. <laughs> he's not self-seeking. He's not unjust. He's not trying to get his own way. He's not focused on something immoral. He rises with healing and with compassion for those who come to him. He's not seeking his own. What a strong contrast that is. And the rule of those who are over the kingdoms of men on this earth and the rule of Jesus and the way that he handles himself and those who come to him. Also, this is connected to the Old Testament. You remember how uh, Matthew describes John the Baptist just like he describes Elijah. He's clothed in camel's hair. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And he's got the same spirit of Elijah, right? He just, he's, he's all about judgment. And we kind of see that as he's talking about uh, talking to Herod. He has, he's bold. He doesn't hold anything back. He speaks the truth that judgment is coming to those who rebel. But notice how Jesus represents Elisha. Elijah in John. Elisha in Jesus. Now, you might be like, wait a second, how? How does he represent Elisha? Well, there's multiple miracles on multiplication in the Old Testament. There's the manna coming down from heaven at the hand of Moses and God. And then there's Elijah multiplying the flour and the oil for the widow at Zarephath. But Elijah's miracle of multiplication sounds just like this event that we read about. In Matthew 14, you go to 2 Kings chapter 4, in verse 42 through 44, this is the story of Elijah. There's a, there's a famine in the land, a judgment against the land, the northern tribes of, of Israel. And this is what, what happens. A man comes from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits. Okay? So this man is from a town that's named after Baal. And he comes to the man of God, bringing bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and a fresh ear of grain in his sack. 
And Elisha says, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give, it, give, to them, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So interesting as you study through this, what you see is the transition from Elijah to Elisha. Elijah is destroyed at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel, right? John is destroyed at the hands of Herod and Herodias, Ahab and Jezebel. And then Elisha rises up. And what do we see in the story of Elijah? You remember that from 2 Kings? Elijah was supposed to be bringing all this judgment, but instead he brings grace and he brings prosperity, brings good to Israel. He saves them from destruction of the Syrians. And, and, and we see that multiplication miracle. He's, he's just showing so much grace and, and love toward Israel, trying to turn their hearts back to God. And that's who Jesus is. Elisha is the representation of Jesus. So we see the connections that are all through this text. This is, this is a text that has a lot of implications, a lot of ideas in it, but there's even more than that. <laughs> and I'm not going to bore you by going through and reading all that stuff, but I find it very fascinating, and maybe you do too. So I'll at least mention it. If you go throughout the Old Testament, you're going to read about desolation. You're going to read about God judging His people and making their land a complete desolation. But in the prophets, you're going to read about a promise to bless the desolate place. Desolation is a picture of sin and evil and corruption. And God promises to bless in the desolate place and bring life and spiritual growth. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this text. This text is saturated with all kinds of connections to, to God's promises coming to, to fruition, coming to fulfillment. And if you were a Jew in the first century and you're reading this, you're seeing it, you're understanding it, and you're realizing this is truly the Messiah. Helping us see the difference between God's rule and the rule of men helping us understand that God is uh, just and loving and compassionate while men are immoral, self-serving, unjust, and oppressive. So that we might turn to God rather than turning and trusting in men. What's interesting to me as we read through this is Jesus withdraws instead of attacking. He withdraws. He doesn't attack. Elisha did the same thing. He, he didn't attack. He showed love. He showed compassion. And, and as we're studying this and thinking about our corrupt world, hopefully we can relate to feeling desolate at times. Hopefully we can relate to feeling like we live in a world that is desolate. You imagine how these crowds feel as their, their prophet, John the Baptist, has been beheaded by their ruler. It just feels as though everything's going wrong in the world. There's no hope. There's evil ruling over us. The righteous, the innocent, are being murdered by our government. We feel desolate. And our tendency is often to withdraw in fear. And notice how Jesus meets the crowds there. To bless them abundantly. 
and to encourage them and to lift them up with a mighty miracle that's unlike anything that they've ever seen. Jesus' mission is not to attack the kings of earth. His mission is to support the humble and lowly. And that's the story that we're getting across here, that Jesus wants to help those who are hurting and lift them up with love and compassion and fill them so that they are satisfied. So if we wanted to apply this to ourselves, how do we think about increasing immorality, injustice, corruption? Well, we can speak out like John. There's nothing wrong with what John did. (laughs) He was righteous as he went up and as he proclaimed, it is not lawful for you to have her. But we need to pay special attention to what Jesus does. As he goes and seeks out those who are hurting, those who are suffering, those who feel empty, those who feel desolate. And he provides them with the healing they need and the satisfaction that they need in a land full of wickedness and immorality. The world all around us is coming to a realization that this is not a righteous nation, that this is not a good place, and that our society, our culture is evil. They're feeling empty and lonely, wondering, what are we supposed to do? How are we going to find satisfaction? They're feeling hopeless. Well, look at the role of the disciples in all of this. Think about them. They're there with Jesus in that desolate place. And Jesus tells them, you give them something to eat. And what do they say? We don't have enough. Look at what we have. We don't have enough. But Jesus says, give it to me. And he, he takes it, he multiplies it, and he gives it back to the disciples. And they turn around and they feed thousands. God provides in this feeling of desolation. He provides satisfaction. He provides hope. He provides fulfillment. So we can't be depressed like all the people around us are depressed. The disciples had to rise out of that and had to do the work that God had given them to do to show everybody that the kings of earth do not rule. They do not set the standard for what God finds acceptable. They are not the righteous judges of earth. There is one righteous judge. And he is compassionate, and he is merciful, and he is just. And he provides us with the blessings and the satisfaction that we need. Do we realize that God is telling each and every one of us, Give them something to eat. Give them something to eat. In a world that's desolate, that's our job. That's our role. And we can't say, Lord, I don't have enough. Because God is with us. And he gives us everything that we need. There's, this world is corrupt. This world is evil. It's horrible. We know But there's coming a day when there will be no more injustice, no more oppression, no more corruption, no more desolation and loneliness. Won't it be wonderful there?
our eyes have to be fixed on that hope and focused on the mission that God has given us to do. Not to overthrow the governments of this world and the kingdoms of this world, but to reach out to those who are desolate and give them something to eat spiritually that revives their soul. I hope and pray that God will heal our government and the many corrupt governments that are throughout this world. We're so self-focused, but it's always been this way all over the world. And I hope and pray God will work to overthrow those governments and raise up someone who is good and humble. But that's God's business. And our business is the people around us who are feeling lost and, and need the help that God can provide. If you're here this morning and you, you feel lost in need of the help that only God can provide, you feel hungry for something and you're just not satisfied, Jesus provides the fulfillment. He's given it to us and he's multiplied it so that we can give it and share it to anybody who wants it. He is full of compassion and mercy and love and grace toward even you. And you can receive his grace today. If you need to do that, please don't delay. Please come as we stand and as we sing.